This is the Conduit Church Teaching Podcast. Thanks for joining us. It's our mission to be a conduit of Jesus to the community in front of us and the world around us, starting with the teaching of His Word. Enjoy the message. Would you open your Bibles to the book of John, chapter 20? Uh, I'm Darren, one of the pastors here. If I don't know you or haven't met you, it's nice to meet you. Uh, A.D. 50. 50 A.D., right? Not 80, right, like in the number, but in the time 50, right after Jesus' ascension, let's put it that way, about 20 years after, the gospel had officially reached India for the very first time time, which is not a small accomplishment. I don't know if you've got a world map anywhere near you, but India is not close to Jerusalem. But somehow, it, gospel, the gospel made it there. And the reason it made it there was a young missionary had the courage, jumps onto a boat, goes along what has been known as the Silk Road. That was before China stole the idea. The Silk Road, and they found their way to India, the East Coast, people started to come to Jesus. Hindus started to turn their back on the pantheon of gods that were available to them. In fact, there was even a small Jewish community that had uh, that made its way there as uh, as things were heating up in Rome uh, and in Jerusalem. A lot of Jews were making their way out to find safety. They found their way to India as well. But this one missionary gets the credit for it. And by 72 AD, now by 70 AD, that's when the, the temple was burned down in, in, uh, in Jerusalem. By AD 72, this young missionary has now been arrested by a, a Hindu prince in the east coast of, of India, in uh, the Tiger Bay area. So he uh, brings this guy in, he's in chains. He's, you know, barking at him because he's messing up his mojo here. All these Hindus are turning their back, including this prince's wife, right, that turned uh, to Jesus and her back on Hinduism. So this was really messing up his Diwali. So he's like, we're going to take care of this, and we're going to arrest this guy. But anyway, he's so angry because this guy refused to recant his faith that he takes a spear and literally chucks it through this guy's back and kills him on the spot a martyr on behalf of Christ. And that young missionary's name was Thomas, who we're going to be reading about tonight in John chapter 20. He has been known throughout history as doubting Thomas, right? Because anybody, you've heard that phrase before, a doubting Thomas? It's completely unfair. I don't know if Trump gave him that nickname, like Sleepy Thomas, whatever, but it was like, he gets this nickname that is not fair, has impugned his, right, uh, his reputation for 2,000 years, and I want to show you tonight that not only is he not doubting Thomas, but that what Jesus did in his life is 100% available to be done and accomplished in our lives in modern day 2023. United States of America. So if you got your Bibles, John chapter 20, we're going to read uh, 26 through 29 for the first few verses here, and then we'll, we'll retrofit back to verse 19 with it. So a week later, okay, Jesus is resurrected now. He has already appeared to uh, 10 of the apostles. Thomas was not in the room at that moment. Uh, now it's a week later that his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. 
And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. And then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. And that is everyone in this room that has believed on Christ, that believes in Jesus, that has not touched his wounds, literally. He says, you and I, we're blessed. And I want to show you why that, that, that it's a quite practical thing that he's saying here. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we approach your word tonight, we approach it with expectation. We approach it with hope that it's not an academic exercise, that your Holy Spirit is 100 percent right here in front of us, inside of us, all over us, speaking to us. Lord, I pray that that is what tonight uh, that you speak to us really specifically in the ways that we need this and we need you. It is in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. So why do we not, like Thomas, give Jesus the benefit of the doubt? Now, have you guys heard the phrase benefit of the doubt before? Know what it means? It's really quite simple, which is, uh, look, if I heard that, you know, you said something, right, so I've known Bob and Carol a while, and if I heard that they said something that was off color or that was harsh, about, like, I know them. So for me to assume that just because somebody said they said it, when I know who they are, Right, I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt, right? The benefit of the doubt just simply means I'm not going to doubt them, right? I'm going to give them the benefit of wanting to hear from them what they did or didn't say. And so what Thomas is really saying here, because just a few verses earlier, Jesus appears to the disciples and he shows them the, his scars. Like he shows them the scars without them asking. It's a week later. Thomas has said, I don't, I'm not going to believe until I see the scars myself. And so Thomas literally coming to Jesus is giving him the benefit of the doubt. I want to see them. He didn't run away and hide. He didn't hightail it right back to Jerusalem and switch sides. He's like, I know Jesus and I want to see this, but I'm giving him the benefit of the doubt. I want to understand. I want to see it for myself. It's not a sin what he did, which is why Jesus didn't shame him. And in those moments, though, when he's telling Thomas this, he says to Thomas, look, okay, you touched him. You saw it. You, you now know it. You're, that's awesome. But now there's going to be those that are coming. And by the way, since that moment, Dan, there's, there's like billions of Christians now that have experienced that blessing of not actually seeing it, but believing anyway. And what I have experienced quite practically in that believing this is peace, stability, and transformation. That's what we experience. That's the actual blessing that we receive. Peace, we receive stability, receive transformation when we believe on Jesus. It's not just some ethereal thing. It's not like you just got to take my word for it. It's not even a because I said so moment, right? From, from the father himself, which look, I don't know about you. I hated it when my dad said that, but then I had a two-year-old of my own and it's like negotiating with the terrorist, 
right? At some point, you're like, oh, this is why they don't negotiate with terrorists, because this is a, so there's that moment, because I said so. But the Father has never, ever said, just because I said so. He offers, in fact, this book of John that we've just spent the last year and a half in is an eyewitness testimony, not to I told you or I said so just because I said so, but here are the facts and here is the eyewitness testimony so that you can know that this is worth, that's what he says right here in chapter 20, I have written these things that you might believe, right? That Jesus is the Messiah, right? That he's the son of God and that by believing on him, we might have eternal life. That's verse 31. He tells us why he wrote this gospel and 2,000 years later, for guys like me, for people like you, it still stands as a case study in how we can believe and be blessed because of it. He says to them, peace be with with you. He, he walks through the door, like they are locked up in a room, afraid, and rightfully so. Like Jesus had been crucified. Their brothers and sisters had scattered. There was a reason to be afraid. So they're, they're in a room, they are locked up, and what does Jesus do? He doesn't knock, not like Revelation 3, right? He just walks through the door, which is a Huge message for you and for me because Jesus loves you and me so much that even if we build up walls to try to keep him out, he'll just walk right through them. Not to force himself on you, but to show you how much that he absolutely loves and pursues you. So Jesus has walked through the door and says, peace be with you. Now, why would it be with a resurrected Jesus specifically? What is it about that that brings peace to us? We used to live on a farm on Paytonsville Arno Road. Now, if you've been out Paytonsville Arno Road in College Grove now, you know that it's like Millionaire Row right? Have you been out there lately? They got fast internet now. Like when we lived out there, my kids thought that the entire world, the internet was like everybody had to, we could only watch one streaming show at a time because it was like 12 BPS. It was like literally like even with one, it was like, and it was, it was, it was really cute actually because their only access to internet was like in uh, school, terrible internet and at home, even worse internet. So, and by the way, when we finally sold the farm and moved, that was one of my biggest selling points was you know, more than one of you can watch a show at a time right now. Uh, now, that's a, the selling point moving into the, the farm, well, at least for my son. This is a 5 p.m., right? Like, son, you could pee outside. He's like, what? By the way, that was also the moment, I think, when I realized, when I learned that my daughters, by the way, that they had what they called a, quote, secret pee place in the neighborhood. That... <laughs> Did any of your kids do that? They were like going in the bushes. Like, we're trying to run a civilization here. <laughs> and they're out there in the evergreen trees with their little secret bee spot. Anyway, so this, the selling point to move in was that they could, and Ethan, we would literally, we'd be sitting in our living room and watching TV. By the way, perfectly good toilet right there, perfectly good bathroom right in the living room. He would walk right by it and, and hit the back deck and just because he could. So anyway, fast internet. But the, the thing about living out there in those days was it was a little sketch. And by a little, I mean a lot. Like our next door neighbor's name was Butch. Uh, Butch enjoyed adult beverages um, a lot, like a lot. And we just were never really sure what was happening. In fact, the first night or second night we were out there, uh, we actually had, 
you know, two uh, knuckleheads like standing on our back deck in the middle of the night. Like it was, it was nuts. But here's the thing. In our house was a dog named Samson. Okay. Samson was the sweetest, to, to least to my family. Like my son would literally get on his back and ride him like a motorcycle, like twist his ears. D- didn't bother him at all. He was like, we're not 100% sure what he was, half pit bull, half bulldog, whatever, but 100% crazy. And when someone knocked on that door, this dog went absolutely bonkers. If you got past him, you earned it. Whatever you were taking from my house, if you made it past Samson, you earned that one. I got to high five you. I don't know how you did that. But here's what that did for me. I had so much peace when I was traveling out of the country of all the things that could go wrong at the farm. And by the way, a lot could. Shannon would call like sobbing, a goat died. I'm like, but it's a fainting goat. Are you sure it's dead? Or is it just, no, it's been down for a while. Um, by the way, our fainting goats were named Benny Hinn. Oral Roberts. I mean, I mean sorry. <laughs> you think I'm kidding. Uh, we would walk out into the pasture and I'd go, be healed, and they would fall over. And anyway... Yeah, yeah. But I felt so much peace in knowing that Samson was alive and was protecting my family. Now, that said, he lives in a little box now, and like, there's a little uh, ash form of him that sits on our upstairs because Samson, I guess, is, ga- is guarding the gates of heaven. I don't know. But, uh, but in those days, because he was alive, I felt peace because he was there. A risen savior means that you have peace in your presence because he is not in a tomb. He is alive. And just like with the disciples, he is there. He is with you. He'll walk through your walls. He'll climb through your doors because he is there to protect and to take care of you. He is not dead. And there is an enormous amount of peace in that. The thing that it also brings to us is that it changes. A a risen Savior brings me peace because my past is taken care of. Like my sins are all forgiven. Everything I've ever done, paid for. And a resurrection means that his sacrifice was accepted, that he is the priest back outside now. The, the, the sins were forgiven, so my past, and I've told you my present, right? There's peace because my present, because I have a living Savior, not a dead one, and my future, it takes care of it because at one point, I'm going to have a Jesus that is not just out in the, uh, it, 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 where I can't see, but I know he's there, but I'm going to be literally physically with him. And I love the picture of what the, the Bible shows us is that it's not going to be some place where we're floating on clouds, right? Playing harps, like a new heaven, a new earth, a, a kingdom of God returning to earth. He is risen. Like that's the... That's the whole thing. Like this, there's so much peace because he is risen. When you talk to people in developing nations, back to India again. I was in Chennai, uh, India. It's been a few years ago. Uh, and, and by the way, in Chennai is a place called Mount Thomas. And Mount Thomas is where Thomas was buried. Now, later the Catholic Church took his remains and brought them back to Italy somewhere and did what Catholics do. God bless the Catholics. Uh, Built a, built the thing around it and the whole thing, but but you can still see it right now that that is happening. That there that there was there. They traced their lineage to him, 
But when you look at what they are holding on to, whether it's in Nepal, Pakistan, Asia, all over Asia, is not a philosophical Jesus. Like they're not holding on to philosophy Jesus, theology Jesus. They're holding on to resurrected Jesus. See, resurrected Jesus is what the disciples, is what the apostles went into the world with. They didn't go out there with just a new teacher. Did they go out with teaching? Sure. Acts 2, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. Teaching is important. But God didn't just send another teacher. And thank God for that. Because if it was just that and a great teacher, let's say it's the best teacher, right? I can't even get the remedial stuff right. Am I going to get saved by getting the advanced, like the AP courses from Jesus? Let's, that's not it. Like the resurrected, they were out saying to the world then, he is risen, he is risen, he is risen. He is not dead any longer. These men and women would die knowing that if, they, if all they had to do was say he wasn't risen, they could survive now, but he is risen and they would die because there are a lot of people that would die for thinking something to be true that is not true. We've experienced that with many radical Islamic terrorists. But if you think that someone would die because of something they knew to not be true and held on to the very end, that is not how human nature works. He is risen. And one of the things that just chaps my hide, and there's a few of them, about to go on a Lewis Black rant here, uh, is the elite uh, theologians, progressive theologians, those who are most concerned with social justice, shall we say, social justice warriors. Most of the time, one of the first things that they turn their back on is the literal resurrection of Jesus. There's a pastor, former pastor here in town named Stan Mitchell. He was at a church called Grace Point. And Stan, in his later years, would say things, and still does, by the way. I remember an Easter sermon a few years ago where he said, well, we don't 100% know whether Jesus was really resurrected. That's uh, what Richard Rohr, you guys hear me griping about Richard Rohr? Richard Rohr talks about this thing called Christ consciousness, like it's a new thing. It's not new. That's Eastern religion. Christ consciousness, it's everywhere. I'm Jesus, you're Jesus. Christ is, we're all Jesus. That is what elite people who care about social justice will say, but listen to me, when you get to the people that are on the other and the receiving end of the quote-unquote social justice, they don't understand what you're talking about at all. They reject that out of hand because a good teacher, we don't need a good teacher. We need a risen savior. The problems in South Sudan cannot be solved with a philosophy course they can only be solved with a risen Savior. They reject it out of hand. They don't even know what you're talking about. Paul says, without the resurrection of Christ, we are to be pitied above all. And it's true, because if he didn't rise from the dead, we can all go home. Because this was just some experiment that didn't work with one more teacher, one more philosopher that is gone from the earth, one more Messiah that didn't make it, but a resurrected Jesus brings peace not only to the poorest of the poor who reject the elite philosophy of this, but even to us. Now, us middle class people, upper middle class, 
We kind of like the idea of love your neighbor as yourself. That sounds really great. We want to strive for that. But if it's just about doing that and not about a risen savior, then it's just one more life hack. It's just one more Tony Robbins conference where we can't do what we had to do because we didn't have a risen savior, a risen savior today, believing that. And the evidence is incontrovertible. We'll be back there again in February. I have stood in the tomb. Here's the thing. Nobody 100% knows the exact place where the tomb is. But the places that we believe it is, are, are, they're all empty. All of them. I, literally, you could go right now to the tomb of Muhammad. Because what do we know about humans? You find the tomb, we'll venerate the heck out of that. Right? The tomb of Buddha, right there. And you don't think for a second that my Catholic brothers and sisters wouldn't have built a giant, in fact, they did on an empty one. If they found one with a body in it, they'd have built a temple right on top of it. But there isn't because he's gone. It's empty. He's risen. And there's peace for me and peace for you. Because just like Samson in the basement protecting my kids, I got Jesus everywhere I go. I've experienced it over and over again in my life, walking into voodoo temples without any fear at all. I'm not naive. I'm not even that particularly courageous. Shannon can tell you that. You should see me when I walk into a spider web in the backyard. It is unfortunate. (laughs) (laughs) Thank God it happened again yesterday. I was out on the riding mower, and I'm telling you, we do not have ring cameras in our backyard, and that is why. Because I don't want that going viral, because it would. Like the amount of karate that I cannot accomplish with a spider web. So I'm not particularly courageous, but with a risen Savior, I know that I have nothing to fear. That in the words of uh, the old song, he walks with me, he talks with me, right? Because he lives. My mother loved that song. I can face tomorrow because he lives. All fears are gone. There's a peace because he lives. And not just peace, but stability, He says to Thomas, stop doubting, verse 27, and believe. He doesn't tell him just because I said so. He says, okay, you've seen it. You've done the work. You've had a week to process all of this. The disciples told you, you've been percolating on this for a week. Now you've seen him. Now you've touched him. You're going to have to cut this crap out. You've got to make a decision. Stop doubting and believe. And there's a gift in that because doubting proactively, doubting is its own belief. You understand, right? The actual meaning of doubt itself is a belief in something not being true. It's a belief in unbelief. That's what he's asking. Stop doing that. Now, there's a difference. Our English language, we only have one word for this that we call doubting. But in Greek language, and we also know that you can say doubting and mean one thing and say doubting and mean another thing. When The idea of questioning, searching, seeking truth, that is not a sinful thing at all. In fact, Jesus encourages that. We saw that last week, right, with Peter. He went in, theoreo, he saw, he's examining, he's asking questions. I'm trying to figure out, why are these clothes, these grave clothes are folded so neatly? Like, if his body stinketh, why would they leave behind the good-smelling stuff? His body must not have been stolen. There must be, he's thinking. So it's not a blind faith. But on the other hand, a blind doubt is exactly what most of Western culture is asking for us right now. I mean, is, is it any coincidence that the elites in our universities have no problem with a rainbow flag? They've got no problem 
with Islam, no problem with Buddhism. We reread a little piece about that last week, about the secular Sabbath. We try to avoid Christianity because it kind of weirds people out. But the rest of it, we're okay with. Like, do, do you see what I'm like? There's, there's a doubt in Christianity specifically that I believe is from the pit of hell. But it's there because it's the only one that's true. What's wild is that every, every one of those other religions, for the most part, will actually say, you can find him in the Quran. Jesus, Jesus is a good guy. Jesus is there. He's, he's a prophet. He's, he's actually in the, in the Quran. He's coming back with Muhammad on a white horse with Muhammad. Like that's their version of it. Buddha, they think he's great. They actually, that's where the phrase Christ consciousness comes from. It's not from Richard Rohr. It's from Buddhism, right? But they all say that Jesus is a way. Jesus says, I am the way. All the religions are pointing to him as a guy, and he's the one saying, yeah, well, no, I am the way. I am only the way. The stability comes from this, that if you and I, if we spend our lives in the doubt, not seeking truth, right, but seeking to doubt, there is no stability in that at all. Matthew 7, Jesus says, those of you who hear my teachings and do what I say, you are building your house on a solid foundation. You're building it on a rock. Those who don't, those who reject it, you are building your house on the sand. And when the winds come and the storms are there and blowing, your house will collapse. I don't mean to beat a dead horse but when you go back to what's happened in a lot of progressive Christian churches, if you don't understand what progressive Christianity is, I'll give you a quick description. It's that the Bible was the best they understood at the time, but now we have made progress and we know better now. So we are adding things to it or taking things away because we know better now. That's what they would consider progress. Now they skip the fact that that's where Jehovah's Witnesses, that's where Mormonism, that's where Islam, like it's not like we haven't tried this before. But in the progressive Christian circles, you mark my words, I've been at this a while and I've had some friends that have, that I know personally that have gone down this road, they would call it deconstructing, I call it just destructing their faith. And watch it over and over and over again. And what you see is not only is that they're becoming unhitched from theology, their lives are becoming unhinged from reality. Their lives are falling apart inside. I've seen it through divorce, through extramarital affairs. And I don't know, I, this is just me saying, I honestly don't 100% know which comes first, the chicken or the egg, right? I don't know if, if their lives were already being torn apart by sin and so this became just the best way if I'm gonna rewrite this so I don't have to feel guilty anymore or if it's the other way around where I'm rewriting this now and since, well, now I've got nothing, I can do whatever I want because I don't believe this anymore. Whichever the case is, the results are the same. Broken hearts, broken lives, families torn apart, churches destroyed because somebody was narcissistic enough to say that I have discovered after 2,000 years something that everybody else has missed. Billions of Christians around the world didn't see this for thousands of years, but I have figured it out, and now I'm going to tell you what is true and what is not true. And 
watch their lives. I, 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 I will not name names in this because many of them are my friends and many of their lives and their families are still out there being destroyed by their narcissism. But a stability in the belief of who Jesus is, believing that these, he is resurrected means that he is literally with me of every step of the way. And that when he said the resurrected Jesus says, for this reason will a man, right, leave his parents and cleave to his wife, right? That when he says in the beginning that he created them male and female, female and male, he created them, that the same thing that Jesus said 2,000 years ago is still true today, and it still builds a solid foundation that we can stand upon so that when the storms come, we are standing on the foundation and the stability that a resurrected Jesus gives to us. And finally, not just stability. Thank God for that stability, right? Thank God for that peace. But then it brings us transformation because a resurrected Jesus tells me, tells you that we are not all that we could be. That I am not, like, I get so angry when I hear somebody tell somebody, oh, no, 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 baby, you are fine just the way you are. When I hear, uh, whether it's through TikTok or leaders or whatever, no, you're fine the way you are. If, if your life is falling apart, right? If you're an 18-year-old guy, right, and you're hooked on porn and you've been taking creative, let's say, recreational materials into your body, right? You've been lying to your parents and someone says, no, no, you're fine just the way you are. That's the worst news you could ever get, like if someone racked with anxiety and racked with depression, oh, you're fine the way you are. That's not good news. That's terrible news. It's more depressing, not less depressing. It doesn't help them. It doesn't help me. You are not all that you can be. And listen to me, especially if you're a young man, but if you're a young woman in this room, this is not a shame on you thing at all. This is a, you can be more than you are. And the resurrected Jesus is proof of that. Because look what happened to Thomas. Thomas, who was one of the, the 11 surviving apostles, has seen the resurrected Jesus. His life has already been transformed. It was back in John, I think chapter seven, I probably should have wrote this down, where, <laughs> someone Google this, I'm getting it wrong, but where Jesus is going back to Judea to raise Lazarus from the dead. Do you remember when we were there a few weeks ago? And all of the disciples, by the way, they are chicken. They are like, oh, we don't want to go back there. And I don't blame them. They almost died there. I almost had this same thing happen to me a few years ago in Haiti. I was in a, a little church setting and look, there was things going on in this community. There were lies being spread. There were, I was being threatened to be kidnapped. And so we called together this meeting into the church. I don't know if I ever told you this, Bob and Carol, this was the church right next to where the school is. And there was, it was just demonic. And so I'm, I'm on the phone with the floor. He's kind of crying because he's like, this is, it's just breaking his heart because we're all being accused of like building mansions in Haiti with the money that we're giving. And I'm like, bro, if we're, I'm doing this all wrong if this is what's going on. Because I don't know if you've seen where I stayed in Haiti, but like the shower curtain comes to here. I'm like, the world's going on now. That's not even, you know what I'm saying? But... I, we're, but the point is, is that th this got intense. And, I mean, Kay, this was, this was at Res uh, Restoration Church. 
uh, we called in a big gun, like a bishop or I don't know, somebody. Uh, he, had a, he had a tie, is all I know, uh, from, from Port-au-Prince. And he comes down and, and we're having this, and it's like a heated debate. Like it felt like a Franklin Town Hall meeting. Like it was just heated. People yelling and throwing stuff. And before long, we started hearing rocks hit the side of the building. And I'm looking around the room and I'm doing a head count of how many uh, white people are there. They call them Blancs in Haiti. Uh, my nickname to this day is Pastor Blanc, which is basically Pastor White Guy. Um, it works. <laughs> so that night was, one, well, it would be one of a few, where I was genuinely, okay, this, is, this, this could go very, very badly because this could escalate. Write that. No, no one's coming for help that night. Jean-Marie throws me on the moto. I go out the back of the church. We take this back winding road. I say road, a path-ish thing. <laughs> Escaped out that night. But let me tell you what, I was on adrenaline all night. I, I, didn't, I don't remember if I told you that night that that happened, but I mean, I'm trying to play it cool because I don't want to freak my wife out, but I'm freaked out. Like this was, I got to get up in the morning. Like I'm making sure that the guy with the shotgun outside the hotel uh, actually has polished that thing off. Like I'm a little nervous because it was, and going back to that again required an enormous amount of either stupidity or courage or maybe both. I don't know, but I've been back a few times since many times. It's the last time it happened, but I'll tell you the first time I went back, I was a little unsettled with it. That's the experience that now Jesus is asking the disciples, we're going back to Judea where they just tried to kill me. And what does Thomas say? Let's all go and we'll die together. Doubting Thomas, my butt, man. He says, I, let's all go. We'll die together. We're, if we're going to go down, we're going down together. And then just a few chapters later, Jesus at that last supper, that dinner the night before he dies, they're sitting at the table. Jesus says, we're, I'm going to go. And where I go, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And what does Thomas ask? How are we going to get there? We don't know how to get there. It's not a doubting question. It's a quite literal, I believe you. How do I get there? Tell me, do I got to go down Paytonsville Arno? Am I, how am I going to get there? It's a legitimate question. No one else is asking that question but Thomas, okay? Now, Thomas now at the resurrected, seeing these wounds, something transforms inside of him that is no longer Thomas gung-ho, grab a club, grab a sword, we're going, we're going to die together. It's not that. It's no longer Thomas following a Messiah that's a good teacher, that's a, an inspiring figure. He says, my Lord, my God. That's the transformation that the living Jesus gave to Thomas. Not a Lord and a God, but my Lord and my God. And that is the most succinct, compelling proclamation of the identity of Jesus out of any of the four gospels. And it's given to us by Thomas himself. Next time you hear or think the word doubting Thomas, laugh at it because it's kooky talk. It's an aspersion upon his reputation that isn't fair and it's not just. My Lord and my God. And in that moment, something is switching in Thomas, something is transforming. He went further away than any of the other apostles to take the gospel. In those early days of all the 11, you can look at where they ended up. He traveled by far the furthest. He had by far one of the greatest impacts. Again, in India today, in Chennai, all over the East Coast, the amount of things named after Thomas is incalculable. 
because his impact of saying, my Lord and my God. And what that allowed him to do, and this is the last thing I'm going to say before I get you out of here, was that what transformed him was not looking at his own wounds, not looking at his own PTSD, not looking at his own trauma. He didn't even have language for that. In our modern parlance, I, look, I, I understand, I, I'm a huge believer in people doing work with professional, with spirit-filled, with Christian. Now, I will say this, a hesitant warning to you. If you're working with therapists or psychologists, check their pedigrees. Because our government right now, this is 100% true in, in schools across the country, including Christian schools, are attaching funding through student loans to these universities to whether or not you will teach diversity, equity, and inclusion type policies. And in the psychology departments of these universities, including in Christian universities in our own town, there are teachers right now that if you were, you would, who are counselors, who if you might as, it would be a better use of your money than to stand on a roof and to throw it down to poor people than to give it to this so this uh, counselor. So that said, I believe in Jesus-centered, Holy Spirit-filled counseling. And you have to be careful because our world is, is steering away from that now. But let me say this. If the only thing that a counselor is doing is having you look at your own wounds, that is not going to heal you. Uh, the idea that I, I've been wounded, you've been wounded, because we live in a Genesis 3 world. Thomas had been wounded, uh, maybe not physically yet, but he had been wounded emotionally. Like any, any definition by today's standards, he would have probably been diagnosed with PTSD. He probably would have been diagnosed with, with trauma. He would have been diagnosed with many things that may or may not have even been true, but diagnosed with them. And the cure that Jesus offered was not don't stare at your own wounds, but look at mine. Because my wounds prove that yours can be healed. See, the wounds that were caused to most of us were caused by other wounded people. Hurt people hurt people. My dad did the best he could with what he knew because he was wounded by his father. Pete Scazzaro says this statement that just absolutely dropped me in the first time I heard it, and that is that Jesus might be in your heart, but your grandfather is in your bones because you feel it from generation to generation to generation. And so to be angry at him, sure, I felt hurt. Sure, I felt anger. But he's a guy that was an alcoholic father, a guy that was, that was abused himself by his father father like it's the best he could with what he had so I if I'm going to sit and stare at my wounds that doesn't heal me it doesn't heal him but looking at the wounds of Jesus the transformation that that brings is that Jesus was wounded for my transgressions he was bruised for my iniquities it's by his stripes that I am healed and it's by his stripes that my father is healed it's by his stripes that whoever abused you or hurt you or caused you pain and you wounds that those stripes healed them as well it is by his stripes you are healed not by looking at your wounds but by looking at his wounds and in those moments, look, I'm not saying that this is an easy path, but I am saying in those moments, bring yourself back to his wounds. Get yourself off of your own wounds and look at his. 
He left him there. Do you, you understand? He didn't have to. Look, I got scars on my body that I wish weren't there. They're great stories, but they're a little unsightly. But he left them there. The only thing man made in heaven are the wounds on the body of Jesus. He didn't leave them there by accident. He left them there on purpose so that A, he could prove his resurrection and that B, he could prove your resurrection. And your resurrection means that you're gonna have a new heaven, a new earth, a new body, a new soul, and your wounds staring at them are not gonna heal you. Tonight, may I encourage you to get into the word. Not another self-help book. They're great, there's lots of them. But get into the word and look into the eyes of Jesus. Look into, blessed are you who have not seen and you still believe you're blessed because there's peace, because you know there's a risen Savior, right? You're gonna be blessed because there's a stability in it. If, you, if you're going down the road of I'm, I'm always traumatized and I'm always triggered and that's not freedom. If, if literally someone says a sentence or a phrase and you were hurt by it and you're quote unquote triggered by it so much that it hurts you in your soul, you're not free. That's not freedom at all. Jesus wants you to be free from that stuff so that someone says something hurtful or offensive that you can brush it off and say, I'm looking at the wounds of Jesus, not the wounds that you're putting on me. The stability of that and the transformation that it brings because a stable, peaceful woman or man full of the Holy Spirit can be transformed. Science has actually proven something that I've just read this for the first time this week and I literally, it blew my mind. And that is that when you, so uh, is Cubby, did I see Cubby back there somewhere? So Cubby just got back from walking around glaciers all over Alaska. Crazy adventure. Did everybody come back alive? That's good. I was watching Twitter, so I'm glad. Uh, Cubby's a tough guy, but he's taking some, fa- you know, some artists and stuff out there. You know, the, the chances of him coming back alive are you know, not as high as you'd like him to be. But, but here's what I learned, Cubby, this week, and that is that when you step into something new that you've never done before, adventure like that, risk, you step into that, that your body literally turns on parts of your genome that codes new proteins that were not there before. Have you heard this before, Dan? Like, this, I'd never heard, I'm blown away by this. What he's really saying is that the, at, at the core of who we are, biologically speaking, that when we step into the adventure and the transformation that Jesus is inviting us into, the risk of that, it literally recodes your body from the inside out. It writes new code in you. Remember a long few months ago, we talked about if there's a coder, that, a code, that means there's a coder. That code in your body was written by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And transformation happens because when I step into something that he's called me into, I mean, Akel, the adventure that you guys are experiencing, whether it was in Peru or, or your ministry, like, it's scary, it's terrifying, it's like, but it's, it's literally writing new proteins encoding new things in you. You are literally being transformed by the renewing of your mind. Isn't it amazing? The God of the universe who is infinitely large is also so infinitely small that he can rewrite your code from the inside out through the power of the Holy Spirit. Stand to your feet. I want to pray for you and get you out of here. Heavenly Father, thank you for being so good, so kind, so amazing to us, so inspiring for us, but also for resurrecting And tonight, from here on out, 
Can we have moments, Father, where you remind us, where we remind ourselves that we are serving not a dead Savior, but a risen Savior? The peace and the stability and the transformation that that brings in us, make it come alive in us tonight. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. God bless you guys. See you next week. Thank you.